Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can find me on Instagram where I'm archiving my Beatles book collection with the account at Books Beatles. I'm joined today by Jim Birkenstadt to discuss his 2013 book, The Beatle Who Vanished, his fascinating and intriguing biography of Jimmy Nickel, the drummer who saved the Beatles' first world tour by stepping in for a stricken Ringo. Jimmy's life after his 13 days as a Beatle was as mysterious as it was remarkable, and Jim's book covers it all in gripping detail. Jim Burke is that. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having me on, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start by asking you initially, what was the inspiration behind writing about Jimmy Nicol? Um, did you feel, what was it about his story that you felt needed to be told? So the inspiration was that until... I decided to write a book. I, I just looked into his life because I thought he'd only ever merited one sentence really in Beatles history as taking over for Ringo. And I looked at British music history books and there was really nothing written about him in general uh, British music history. So to me, it was a challenge to see if I had the uh, research skills to find a person who never wanted to be found. And, um, and then I had questions, you know, I, what did Jimmy Nickel do to get this job with the Beatles? You know, what was his backstory? How did he get into that position? And, and not just anyone could fill in for Ringo Starr and, you know, suddenly uh, imagine you have less than 24 hours to go on tour with the Beatles at the height of their fame and, you know, no matter how good a drummer you are, do you know Ringo Starr's drum parts? You know, there's four limbs all moving at once, you know, for a drummer. And uh, quite an amazing thing, you know. I thought, well, how could that be? How could he be prepared? And so why was he chosen? And, and why did he already know Ringo Starr's parts? Those were some of the questions I wanted to know. And then uh, once he was on tour, what was it like inside the inner circle of Beatlemania? And then I wondered, well, what did Jimmy Nickel do after the Beatles? And most importantly, how did he handle those 15 minutes of fame, uh, which, you know, started, he had that 15 minutes of fame at, at age 25. So what do you do the rest of your life? How do, you, how do you handle that? And then the last question I had was, was he dead or alive? Uh, because many people at the time I started to research the book, I started with a lot of the musicians that he had worked with in London before the Beatles tapped him to replace Ringo. And they all said, well, we've heard he's dead and we never saw him again after 1965. So it was really an interesting odyssey to figure out what happened to him. What I'd like to, to start with really is uh, the, the 3rd of June, 1964 you, you talk about it you refer to it in in your book as the call and it's mm -hmm. a call it's a call that only a handful of people ever received uh, and that's a call essentially asked being asked to, to join the Beatles um right. how did that that call happen what were the events leading up to Jimmy sure. Nicol receiving that call on that date to, to go and join the the biggest band in the world well, it's interesting because uh, the Beatles were just going through a typical day where they had a, a photo shoot at, at around the lunch hour. 
and it was uh, June 3rd, as you said, and uh, Brian Epstein was with the boys and they were doing the photo shoot when all of a sudden Ringo Starr collapsed to the ground. And uh, I remember when I interviewed Neil Aspinall, who was all, also there, he said, I remember just picking up Ringo's body and carrying him to a car to take him to the hospital. And uh, he didn't weigh very much. He's just this little guy and uh, poor guy was sick and he, he just, uh, you know, collapsed on the floor. It was a shock to all of us. So um, this was less than 24 hours before they were to board a plane to start their first ever world tour. And Epstein had spent a year putting this tour together from the airplane reservations to talking to the record company in all the countries to make sure there was a single out when the Beatles hit town, the hotel rooms, equipment, the, uh, the backup bands, uh, warm-up bands in every city. And, and back then we didn't have the internet, we didn't have cell phones. And, and making a long distance phone call was extremely expensive. So everything was done by written correspondence, which is why there are just mounds of letters that I was able to go through, reading the correspondence of Epstein to the promoters and, and back again. And so it would have been an utter calamity for the Beatles from uh, lawsuits for, you know, refund the tickets to the promoters and all this merchandise on shelves around the world. He, the world tour had to go on in the mind of Epstein. So really with no time to spare, he sent Neil Aspinall down to some Soho nightclubs in search of drummers to, you know, fill the bill. He needed to really discreetly look for all possibilities because they didn't want the media when they found out about Ringo to think that Ringo was being replaced just as Pete Best had been. The first drummer they asked to fill in was not Jimmy Nickel. In fact, he was another excellent London drummer uh, go, who goes by the name of Ray Duval. And Ray is still alive, and I, I spoke with him. And so in 1962, Ray was the drummer in a headlining band called Emil Ford and the Checkmates. And in April of 62, the Checkmates headlined a show promo promoted by uh, Liverpool's Sam Leach, at the Tower Ballroom in Liverpool. And uh, when I talked to Duval about being asked, he said, the chap asked me to fill in for Ringo, who was ill. And, uh, and Duval said, it's not for me. I'm doing just fine with my band, The Blue Notes, right now. And he said, there were so many bands like the Beatles in 1964. I thought, they're not going to make it. And so he, when he told me that, he was laughing because he realizes, of course, how great they were and how special they were and how it would have been a, a, a great thing in order to, to have been able to go on tour with them. So with one strike down, Epstein uh, decided to call drummer Bobby Graham. And at the time, Graham was one of the most prominent recording uh, session drummers in London. And he had also worked in many UK first generation rock bands, uh, Marty Wilde and the Wildcats. And according to uh, Graham's history, uh, Epstein had previously asked him to replace Pete Best in the summer of 62. 
but that's of course according to Bobby Graham. So we won't we won't go down that rabbit hole today. But uh, Graham said in an interview, uh, Epstein phoned me and offered me the gig with the Beatles to Holland and Australia, but I couldn't do it because I was a session man and so much work to do that I didn't dare not turn up for those sessions. However, that day Graham suggested. Uh, that he knew and respected the drumming of a young drummer named Jimmy Nickel. And, and Graham said, I'd seen him that day or the day before in one of the pubs by Denmark Street. So he recommended that Epstein uh, look for Jimmy Nickel. So two strikes down, <laughs> one to go, as we say in baseball. Um, so it was interesting. Graham worked in the same club of session musicians as Jimmy Nickel. And there was this guy named Charlie the Fixer. And if you didn't show up for two weeks, and they, these were really lucrative uh, jobs at the time, you were paid three times more than the average British, British citizen. So session work was great. And if you didn't show up and you went off on tour for two weeks, you basically were blacklisted by this guy for a month or two and you didn't work when you got back. He punished people because he wanted them and needed them on a moment's notice for all the various uh, sessions that he was organizing for. So uh, Graham, who was really the number one drum session player, did not want to, did not want to risk the uh, anger of Charlie the Fixer. So the call was a, a momentous occasion for him and he was actually called by George Martin. When I interviewed the late George Martin, he said that he, unlike all these articles on the internet that continue to go out, they, they all say that George Martin had worked with Jimmy Nickel, knew of Jimmy Nickel. And he said, no, that's not true. He said, I had never worked with him. He was on a different label, worked at a different studio. Um, he said, I had heard of him, but he said, until, uh, until Brian Epstein told me to give him a call and have him come down uh, for this tryout, he said, I had no knowledge of Jimmy Nichols' abilities. You know, he got the call and he was very excited and finally got to go down for the tryout, which, you know, we'll leave to the readers as to how that tryout went. Um, I'm, I'm curious to, to find out what you found out about how Jimmy fitted in personally with the other three Beatles. I mean, obviously they're known to us as a four-headed monster, famously described by lots of different right. people. Um, at, at this point, their closeness was, you know, um, world-renowned. They were, you know, they almost spoke in their own language to, to each other, and they very, very rarely let other people into that circle. So suddenly, here's this guy that, that turns up and, you know, has to play all these shows with them and be on planes and hotel rooms with them. Were they receptive to him? Were they welcoming to him? Well, um, certainly John and Paul were right off the bat. I think they realized the importance of um, making him feel comfortable so that it would help him perform well. George was adamantly against it, uh, and, and that was one of the issues that Brian Epstein had to deal with before, um, before they even started calling around for drummers. Uh, George basically said, you know, if, if Ringo's not in, in the band, then we're not the, really the Beatles, and so I'm not going to go either. But they, they explained to him the legal ramifications, the financial issues, the, the bad publicity that would be worldwide, and how it could actually end the life of the band. So 
uh, you know, the show must go on, George. So uh, George went along with it. And I think over over the time of being with Jimmy Nickel, he warmed up to the the fact that, you know, this is fait accompli and, and I just have to go along with it. But John really seemed to take Jimmy Nickel under his wing on the tour. If you look at, you know, film clips, if you look at um, photographs, uh, John always seems to be right there with Jimmy Nickel. And uh, they seem to sit together. They seem to have some in-jokes and things. And I think one of the things that helped was that, um, first of all, Jimmy Nickel had played with a lot of the first wave of, of British rock stars. And uh, John had grown up listening to them and wanted to know about his experiences. And so I think Jimmy was a good fit. He had the credibility as a drummer. He was a little older than the Beatles, a little more mature. He had toured England, Scotland, and Italy. Brian Epstein had seen him do a recording session with one of his other uh, uh, artists that he represented. Paul McCartney had seen him play with Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. And then when they flew to Hong Kong on this tour, Tony Sheridan happened to be on the flight. They called him up uh, to first class. And it was a big surprise to the Beatles that Jimmy had played in uh, Tony Sheridan's band before even the Beatles had played with Tony Sheridan in Hamburg. So I think all of that sort of helped Jimmy start to fit in uh, pretty quickly along the, uh, the tour, pretty early on in the tour. And then, of course, when he played, you know, he did a pretty good job. He certainly did. He certainly did. I think what's interesting, actually, you mentioned about Jimmy and John there, is on the, the TV interview clip, which I'm sure most people that listen to this podcast uh, are aware of on the Dutch TV show, where they're interviewed. I think it's a really excellent interview, actually. They... They, they they seem relaxed. They're taking questions from the audience, aren't they? Obviously heavily translated. Um, and John is on particular comic fire, and Jimmy is you know really cracking up at, at some of John's yeah. John's. John. Obviously, Paul and George have known this guy for you know five six years. They they know how funny John can be. Uh, right. For Jimmy, it's all it's all new, and he's you know he's side splitting when John starts talking about sin and you know all that kind of stuff so i think it's i think you're right it's, it's, it's interesting that john who we're told is the most abrasive and and angry of the beatles was the one that kind of warmed to jimmy the most and kind of took him under his wing yeah it's quite interesting and i i think that will be uh reflected in the film uh, that's being made um by ecos in in england i think it will that that Factor, the John Lennon-Jimmy Nickel relationship on tour will be um, probably explored quite mm. a bit because um, they, the screenwriter found that to be an interesting aspect of the uh, tour, the fact that Jimmy was trying to fit in and John was really trying to help him. And I think, you know, John, as the founder of the group, maybe took that on as a responsibility. Yeah. So, yeah. When if we go on to the tour itself now, um, something that I think is we have to mention really is obviously during the Let It Be sessions, um, the Beatles are reminiscing, aren't they, about about um, their old touring days, even though it was only five years ago at that point. It, it must have felt like a lifetime ago. And of course, Jimmy Nichols' name uh, appears in conversation and 
the bit that kind of stands out, uh, you're laughing because you know what I'm going to say, is they seem to remember the most about Jimmy for this tour is that he spent most of it eyeing up the women. He seemed to be, he seemed to be particularly interested in the, the female opportunities that were on offer to him during this tour. Do you think that's something that, that why do you think that, that stayed with the other Beatles all those years later? Well, you know, I think that it, that that couple of weeks with Jimmy Nickel was just such an anomaly in their otherwise standardized view of touring that, you know, anytime you're, it's like, okay, tour, then we got to do a record, then we're doing a movie, then we're doing photos. It's so much of it kept repeating that that one moment must have seemed quite interesting to the Beatles to recall, and and in fact, in during the Let It Be unreleased portions of the Get Back sessions, as they're called, um, there's discussion of where should we film the last scene of the movie, which is a live performance, and they're mentioning all these exotic places, and uh, Paul says, I think it was Paul who said, I don't think that Ringo w- wants to leave the country, so we'll just have to get Jimmy Nickel. <laughs> there's some chuckles around, so. For some reason, uh, Paul, and I write about this in the book, Paul does continue to remember Jimmy Nickel. Of course, the famous song, Getting Better, uh, the, the title was certainly influenced by Jimmy because they would ask him each day on tour, how are things going? And that was his reply. So yeah, things, it was very interesting how the, the Beatles recalled that experience, you know, but I think it's because it was an anomaly. Yeah from what they normally had and with Ringo, of course. That's, that's really interesting, actually. I, I, I never thought of it like that, really. Um, so the Jimmy completes his, his time with the Beatles um, and Ringo returns. And there's a, a, a press conference, isn't there, with all five of them, where um, yeah. Jimmy's, J- Jimmy's chatting away and Ringo's there. Uh, and, uh, and then, obviously, Jimmy's sent on his way. Um, uh, he's given a gift. Is, is it by Brian? Is it a watch that Brian gives him? Yes. Yeah. Uh, gold watch engraved, and it's uh, a thank you for his services. He's both Epstein's name and the Beatles are on there as thanking him. It's interesting because since the book has come out, I've learned quite a lot about the travels of this gold watch. And really? How, yes, and how it um, affected Jimmy Nickel. It, it, in a way, it was it was almost a it was sort of the symbol of the double-edged sword of fame that he went through because beforehand he was sort of, uh, you know, an innocent, hardworking young drummer. Then after he gets a gold watch, that reflects the time period that he has seen what, you know, uber fame looks like. Mm. And he's been to the top of the entertainment world for a couple of weeks with the biggest band in the world and a band that not only was important for their music, but culturally and, and affected so many people from the baby boomer generation. And then they've passed it down hmm. to future generations. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing, the gold watch. I, I'm actually writing a um, second edition of the book where I'll be adding new information. And one of the big stories that I'm, Keeping wrapped up here is, <laughs> is the gold watch. <laughs> well, we look forward to that. We look forward to that. So if we could just return uh, to um, the mid-60s now. So as I said, Jimmy's on his way. Um, you would think that 
the opportunities that were open to Jimmy from this point would be many. Um, but the the cold right. hard fact of it is that just a year later, in 1965, Jimmy uh, applies for bankruptcy. He he, did, he declares himself bankrupt. He, he you know it's it's not something that many people ever have to do, but it was something that that Jimmy Nichol did. Um, I was just wondering, really, if you could tell us how he went, how he got from, you know, playing in front of all those people and being in the Beatles to having to, to declare himself bankrupt. Right after Jimmy Nickel comes back in 1964, he's uh, offered a gig to put together a band to replace the Dave Clark Five because Dave Clark Five has gotten sick. And they, they get to play a, I think it was a two-week stand to a really large group of people. Jimmy's still getting all the media attention he puts out a, a single for his group. The group was called Jimmy Nickel and the Shub Dubs. <laughs> and he was not out front singing. So it's tough for a drummer who's in the back of the band behind everyone else and then just has some ordinary singer up there that, that no one's heard of and no one really catches on to. You know, it's really hard for a band like that to do well. If you think about it in more modern terms, when uh, Kurt Cobain died and Dave Grohl decided to start his own band, he did it by picking up a guitar mm -hmm. and writing songs and singing, and he was the front man. And so the Foo Fighters have become a, a world-famous band. But I don't think that would have happened if they had had some anonymous singer up front and Dave Grohl hidden behind the drums. Mm -hmm. So same problem Jimmy had. So as time went on, the media attention of the fifth Beatle, uh, as they were calling him at the time, that starts to wane as, as the newspapers look for other stories uh, in the music world. So that results in fewer people knowing about him. The gigs start to get smaller. Mm. He had to spend a lot of money because his band was all made up of session players. And as we said before, if you're going to miss a few weeks touring, uh, you're going to get penalized for it. So if someone wants to hire you to be in the band, which is the Shove Dubs, you're going to have to pay these guys a lot of money. Well, bad business practices, because once you're locked in with those high expenses and your uh, revenues go down because you're playing smaller and smaller gigs until you're just playing little pubs, you eventually can't afford your band anymore. So that plus the fact that their records uh, didn't chart and in fact, one of the records they did in the fall of 64 was also being done at the same time at another label with Van Morrison singing with his group, Them, and an unknown session guitarist named Jimmy Page playing guitar on that song. So that version did chart and Jimmy's version didn't uh, with an unknown singer and no, no Jimmy Page. So all of these things combined to... Um, basically caused the shub dubs to go back to session work and they broke up. Then in 1965 in, in January, Jimmy hired uh, the manager of the Hollies uh, mm -hmm. and he got, got Jimmy an initial flurry of media attention. Uh, Jimmy created a new band called the sound of Jimmy nickel. And uh, that band really didn't get many gigs after, again, after the initial media flurry of, of this new signing uh, happened. And so as a result, with all the expenses he put out for this band, 
Jimmy ultimately went bankrupt. And so that was an issue. And he really was unemployed at that time because he had burned his bridges by not returning to Georgie Fame's band as he had agreed to do. So Georgie Fame wasn't going to bring him on as a regular drummer. And he had also turned his back on very lucrative session work. So Charlie the Fixer wasn't going to bring him back. Mm. I, in fact, I recently talked to his widow, who's like 94 years old, and she said, oh, yes, my husband was very angry at Jimmy Nickel and was not going to help him out a year later after he had you know, spurned the idea of coming back. And so I really think his ego got the better of him, and he made some bad mistakes. The, the records he made also, it's kind of interesting from a musical standpoint, he was sort of exploring the combination of jazz and rock as a fusion at that time when, if you recall, the hits were all, you know, rock and roll and maybe uh, rhythm and blues oriented, at least coming out of England. And so he was sort of ahead of his time because later there were groups like Blood, Sweat and Tears that, that did do quite well with that jazz rock type fusion, Chicago, uh, the band. He made some mistakes musically in terms of the singles. He didn't have, he, he, he wasn't really a singer. He spent too much money. And by the end of, uh, by I think August of 65, he was broke, unemployed, divorced, and didn't have many options. And when Paul McCartney read about this, this is another moment in time where Paul read about it and mm. felt bad for him. So he actually called up uh, Peter Asher and asked if Peter and Gordon could hire him for some sessions. And so he did a couple sessions with them, as well as uh, a little bit of touring around with Peter and Gordon. And then uh, for the first time in, in his story, he completely vanished and, and no one, none of his old musical friends ever saw him again after he left London uh, in the fall of 65. So, as we move on then to so the fall of 65, as you say, he, uh, he, he vanishes. The next appearance, as far as I can make out from the book, is in a, a group called the Spotniks. Um, so tell us a, a little bit about a, who the Spotniks were and how Jimmy found his way into that particular group. Well, they were a Swedish rock band and they were probably 98% rock instrumentals very rare that they had vocals okay. and they were very, they were compared with a, an American group around that time called the ventures who were another instrumental rock band. And they had been on a, on the same bill as Jimmy nickel and the shub dubs when, um, when they went to their country to do a little tour in the fall of 64. And so um, they were aware of him. And their drummer, the Spotniks drummer that fall of 65, uh, was getting married and his wife didn't want th that drummer to tour anymore because they basically, she basically wouldn't see him for a year or two. And so uh, the Spotniks decided to give a call to Jimmy Nickel out of the blue and uh, he accepted the deal and, and flew over to uh, Gothenburg, I think it is. I'm not <laughs> sure I pronounced that correctly. But um, they hired him. And what was interesting for him was he was, again, replacing another drummer, but he was a full member of that group. So he would share in all the profits 
they had a uh, number one single the first year they went out on tour and Jimmy got another little taste of Beatlemania when they landed in Japan. Uh, the Spotniks manager had the, the, one of their, one of their trademarks was that when they would play a concert, they'd dress up in space suits, uh, <laughs> like the Russian uh, astronauts. And so, um, the manager said, before we leave the plane, I want you all to throw on your, your uh, spacesuits and walk down the plane and it'll be great for publicity. None of them really wanted to do it, but they went ahead and did it. And, and there were all these screaming girls there because they had this number one hit record in Japan and it, they made a big deal about it. But so there was this small flurry of media attention they got and they, they went around the world twice uh, touring the world. And along the way, they would also record albums in certain cities so that there'd be an album, let's say, called The Spotniks Live in Paris or Live in France. And then everyone in that country would buy it because hmm. their country's name or their city's name was on it. And they also did studio albums. So he recorded quite a few albums and, and got to be involved in arrangements and those sorts of things. So it was a it was a good period for him for about two years, but I think he got tired of their type of music. That was what one of their uh, Peter Winsness, the keyboard player, told me. I think he just got tired of our style and and didn't feel like he was growing musically by remaining. And so he showed up drunk one night when they were in Mexico playing a, a one month stand in uh, Mexico. I think he was also, according to the keyboard player, drunk and high on drugs and he fell off the drum kit. And so he was immediately fired by the manager. They, they barely, they were almost teetotalers at the time. Right. Um, so that was the end. And then it took me a while to figure out where did he vanish to next? Cause all of the Spotniks thought, that he had moved to Brazil because he was always talking about Brazil and, and their type of music there. So it turns out then, I, I was going to ask about the Spotniks, why he left the Spotniks, but you've, you've handily answered that question for me, Jim. So thank you for, for, that, for, for doing that. So I've got, as, as far as I can see from the book, after the Spotniks, he decides to relocate to Mexico. Um, right. I, I, I was wondering what on earth it was that, that drew Jimmy to, to Mexico? He really liked Mexico. Um, you know, I think he, while they were there for that month, he took the opportunity to drive around and he found, you know, the city is concentrated with a lot of people, Mexico city, but then there's beautiful other places around Mexico city in the mountains and the hills and things. And it's a, you know, I think he, he found it to be an interesting place and he started to get involved in sort of the artistic underground. He, he played these gigs in, in small bars to begin with after the Spotniks in Mexico City, and he would bill himself uh, on the marquee as the fifth Beatle. So it's interesting because sometimes he would be mad at Brian Epstein, uh, thinking that he had been blacklisted and that that was why the Shub Dubs failed and why his second band failed. But other times, if the, the Beatle connection helped him, such as in this case, then he would use it. So. Mm sort of conflicted over over that and he met a a dancer and a singer asked her to help him put together a tour of mexico city 
her name was Julia, and ultimately they got married. So that sort of had him put down roots. And then um, there was a, I'm trying to remember his name, Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington asked if he wanted to go on a, a tour of the United States as the big band drummer. And uh, Julia told me that he turned it down because he wanted to spend time with her and, and to be in, in Mexico. So that was interesting. He also served as an A&R producer for Mexico's uh, RCA records. And when they, back then, rock and roll in Mexico were all cover bands. They would just do cover songs. So RCA said, maybe we can make some money if we get a, uh, a rock band together in Mexico that um, plays original music that they have written. And so Jimmy Nickel, <laughs> I just find this very humorous. He said, I've found the next big thing. And the band was called Los Nickelquin. And it was made up of Jimmy Nickel and a guy he had met at the studio named Eddie Quinn. Eddie Quinn was an American and Jimmy Nickel was of course British. And so that would be the Mexican next big thing in music <laughs> to non-Mexican people. So they did an album uh, that I would call psychedelic and it, it was not really well received. It was not that good, to be honest. And uh, but then he did other things. He, he wrote film soundtrack music for uh, what we used to call then as art films or independent films. He taught music theory. He was on the radio there. Um, he got involved a little bit with the protests of the students against the Mexican government. Uh, he even started his own button factory. And I remember, you know, because of translations from Spanish to English, I thought, what an odd thing, making buttons for shirts. And then later, after I had a different person translate it for me, Turns out they were buttons like political buttons or peace and love or anti-war, uh, the types of things that he could then sell to the students who were protesting. And he also uh, did some unlicensed beetle related buttons as well, I which is kind of interesting. Interesting. So unfortunately, we have to swiftly move along into Jimmy's life. There's so much that, that we could go through, obviously, but... Um, so after the time that he spends in Mexico, uh, I'm, I think I'm right in saying he, he, he quietly returns to the UK. Um, uh, but the, the next event that, that really stands out in your book for me is that he goes in 1984 to a Dutch Beatles convention. Now, obviously, after John's death, the Beatle convention circuit explodes you know we know that obviously they did exist before 1980 but the attendances uh, greatly increase uh, for lots of reasons i suppose after after john dies um this would have been a huge income uh, trail for jimmy you know he could have attended any anyone if you think now the kind of people that go to Beatle conventions as guests you know some of their connections to the Beatles with the best will in the world are not the the thickest shall we say um but right. Jimmy but but Jimmy is someone that that was in the Beatles you know there are as we said earlier there aren't many people that um that can say right. that so, so so really what my question around around that event was what was it about that particular 
uh, Beatles convention in Holland. Obviously, he went to Holland with the Beatles, so there's that. But what, what was it about that year, that time, that attracted him to that convention? And why on earth do you think he didn't do any more after that one? Well, I, at the time, I don't think the American convention people or organizers knew where or how to contact Jimmy Nichol. Uh, I think the, the gentleman who was in charge of that fan club in Amsterdam actually went over to London uh, in search of Jimmy Nichol and, and found him and his son, Howie, and offered him the opportunity to come back. And it was the 20th year anniversary of the Beatles tour to Amsterdam and, and the rest of the world. And that was the tour Jimmy had been on. And I think Jimmy felt like, well, here's a chance to get paid, uh, get a free trip to Amsterdam, uh, be, you know, given the red carpet treatment, the, ho the nice hotel. In fact, they put him in the same hotel that the Beatles had been in, and mainly so they could take pictures and whatnot. Uh, and Jimmy uh, brought his son Howie along and, um, the organizer actually gave me an unreleased, unheard tape where they privately interviewed Jimmy and Howie, which um, is, of course, reflected in the, the book reporting. But what was interesting was uh, Jimmy at that time said he was going to write a book about not just his Beatle experiences, but his whole career. And they said, well, do you, do you consider that you were a Beatle? And he said, oh, yes, I was a Beatle in every way. You know, I was in the cars and the parades with 300,000 people in Australia, and I was treated as a Beatle in every way. I played on stage with them. I, we played on TV. I appeared at the press conferences. And then his son says, well, but you weren't really a Beatle. <laughs> and they actually get into a little argument. But uh, long story short, it was really an opportunity to um, go on a free trip and and I, I think from the pictures, some of which are in my book, uh, it seemed like he enjoyed it. What do you think led him to not do it anymore after that? As you say, he enjoyed it. So must have been countless opportunities, especially now, as yeah. you say, initially, he might have been hard to contact. Suddenly yeah. there he is at a convention. Did that not lead to other offers from other conventions? Well, um, I'm not aware of the big convention here, which is was called Beatle Fest, and it's now the fest for Beatles fans. I'm not aware of them ever making contact with Jimmy. Okay. And I, um, I think that something changed with regard to Jimmy not wanting to uh, be associated with the Beatle issue anymore. I don't know whether it was that, uh, you know, sometimes people are very famous at a young age for one thing, and then the world doesn't realize they did many more things in their life and they only get, you know, like say someone who was on one hit TV show mm. and people always are saying, well, what was it like being on Seinfeld? And Oh, you never did anything after that. Did you, <laughs> you know, so that's kind of a heartbreak to deal with. So it may be at that point when this, this fellow came back uh, from Amsterdam about 10 years later for like the 30th anniversary. Mm. And at that point he, knocked on Howie's door and Howie, he said, you know, we'd like to have you and your dad come back for the 30th anniversary. And that's when Howie said, well, uh, my dad is dead. And that started a report that, that went around the world through mainly word of mouth and maybe some Beatle magazines that Jimmy Nickel had died. I think that's, a, that's I was just going to come to that, that particular point. I think that's 
one of the most fascinating parts of of the book is that you know there aren't many stories where a son you know blatantly it would appear lies to someone to say that their father had died now if you mm-hmm. could just just run through a little bit about Jimmy and Howie's relationship did they right. f- first of all did did Jimmy have any other children apart from Howie well i would just say none that i'm aware of okay it's certainly possible uh actually i did talk to his first cousin who he remained close with till about 2005 and he did not mention any other children that he was aware of in fact he said other than that Jimmy had found another uh, girlfriend that might become a wife. Uh, He didn't mention anything about kids, but the relationship between father and son, you know, they really didn't get to know each other until Jimmy returned quietly to London in the mid seventies. And so by that time, I think Howie was perhaps a teenager or almost 20. And so they had to sort of restart that relationship. And um, it sounded on that tape I heard, it sounded like they had a pretty decent relationship, but that sometimes they would butt heads and things would be strained. Now, when Jimmy told Howie to lie about his death, that put Howie kind of in the middle, put him in a tough situation. And I, I think that Jimmy had been fed up with the Beatles and the whole thing following him through life. And, and I think that forcing his son to lie about that and then later the lie being uncovered caused their relationship to again become estranged because um, the last interview I saw with Howie, he said, I haven't spoken to my father in about, I don't know, I think he said 12 years, I haven't heard from my father. So they're definitely estranged and um it's just it's just a sad thing it's too bad it it, it certainly is yeah just staying on howie uh, a little bit obviously again i'm sure most people listening to this podcast are aware howie nickel was heavily involved in of all things uh, the beatles anthology project and the wingspan project that that, that paul did later um of course in, in your book you describe that that paul approaches howie uh, again and and asks um after Jimmy, essentially, um, if you could tell us a little bit about, first of all, what what how he said back, and and why you think Paul was was still, you know, even even longer, even further into the future, um, well, so yeah. Paul was still interested oh, in Jimmy. Paul was always interested in Jimmy, and 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 this was another occasion where he thought it would be very great for Jimmy to be interviewed for the uh, Beatles anthology video and talk about his time with the Beatles. And when Paul found out that Howie was uh, his uh, sound recordist on that film, he approached Howie and asked if if Jimmy would be interested. And uh, Jimmy just said, nope, (laughs) he does not (laughs) want to do this. And that's because at that point, he didn't tell Paul that Jimmy had died, but he just said, no, He's just not interested in anything to do with the Beatles anymore. And uh, what's interesting to me is that then, I don't know, maybe the uh, Beatles put out a a movie that they worked on for quite a while. Ron Howard directed it about eight days a week. Eight days a week, yeah. Yeah. And when that movie was being uh, worked on in development, I was involved 
in research for Apple. And at one point they said, um, Ron Howard was wondering if uh, perhaps Jimmy Nickel, you could locate Jimmy Nickel for us and, and we could interview him. And I said, well, if I can find him, you know, I'll send a message. But I said, I don't think he wants anything to do with the Beatle experience anymore. And I reminded them that he had turned down Paul for the anthology. So, so there's, you know, other than little brief film clips in these two movies, uh, you don't hear from Jimmy specifically about his experience. Jimmy is mentioned, isn't he, in the anthology? They do, they do discuss his his appearance. I suppose they had to because you know it, it was a, a big part of that world tour was that Ringo wasn't there. Um, so right. I, I think it's it's good that you know he's mentioned. There's that little film clip of them just before they set off, and Jimmy's on the drums, and they're they're kind of jost, jostling a little bit with him. So I think even though it, it's it's interesting in a way that Paul asked about Jimmy because if you think about the people that are interviewed in the anthology outside of the three surviving Beatles and obviously the audio of John, the only people that are interviewed are Neil Aspinall and Derek Taylor. Um, and I, I can't think of anybody else. You know, they didn't interview any of the wives. They didn't interview, you know, people like Tony Bramwell or Alistair Taylor. They're all, all alive and, at that point. Um, but yeah. it's interesting that, that Paul still thought of Jimmy as someone that, that could yeah. have contributed to the anthology. Yeah, I think that um, it would have been an interesting contribution. It would have fit in beautifully with that mm. segment of the film. But, um, you know, you got to have cooperation. <laughs> we draw to a conclusion now on, on uh, our conversation uh, about this book. One of the, the highlights of the book for me was your trip to London, your trip to the UK, um, which you decided to undertake to complete your, or try to complete anyway, your search for Jimmy. Um, I was wondering if you could just run through what it was that led to your decision to come over to uh, the shores that I'm in now, the UK, uh, and what you found while you were over here. Well, I was in a friend's house and I was telling him about writing the book and, you know, some of the things I discovered and he, he found it very interesting. And he said, well, you can't end the book until you go to London in search of Jimmy Nickel. And I thought, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea. And he said, no, it's not an idea. It's an order. You have to go there. Because <laughs> he said, all of your readers will want to know if you, you know, made the big effort to try and locate him and ask the questions that you still have for him. So I said, all right. And I planned a trip to London and I um, mapped it out so that I could go to some of the recording studios, Pi and Decca. Uh, Deco is, of course, where um, Brian Epstein had first uh, seen a recording session with Jimmy. Pi is where he did a lot of his shove dubs work, as well as uh, recording cover songs of the Beatles, which is how he learned Ringo Starr's drum parts. And then I went to some of the Soho nightclubs where he had played, and um, just all to the various places. And then the last place I was going to go was I had found his apartment. And I was going to go there and just knock on the door. So I, uh, I think it was the Camden area I went to. And I saw a pub and said, I think I need a little liquid courage. Mm. So I went in there. And uh, then I walked over to his apartment, which was down this very discreet sort of alleyway. And what is really amazing, and I think this photo is in the book, mm. as I looked straight ahead towards the wall, there were all these shadows and leaves and things, uh, vines on the wall. 
and it looked just like the Beatles crossing Abbey Road. And I said, well, this is, this is too weird. <laughs> and there was, at the end of that lane, there was his uh, apartment. I knocked on the door and uh, a young man came to the door who had no idea who Jimmy Nickel was. And he said, no, I, I've been renting here for a couple of years and never heard of him. So I then uh, contacted a local detective agency in London and they discovered that Jimmy owned a 100-year lease on that apartment and that he'd had a property manager rent it out. And then their computer search uh, found that um, his medical prescriptions and his uh, pension, uh, that those things were leaving the country once a month, but they couldn't tell what country they were going to. Mm. And so Jimmy had vanished again. But at least I made the effort uh, to go there. And it was really interesting to, you know, see these various places and be able to then describe them better in the book. Yeah, fascinating. So what you got from that trip then was that Jimmy is not in the UK at, at that point anyway. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, so if I could just conclude, you, you mentioned earlier, which obviously I was unaware of, that you're working on a new version of this book. I was, I was going to ask you what you'd found out in the seven years since you published yeah. it, but obviously you're going to be keeping those cards relatively close to your chest and quite understandably. I, 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 can't, I understand that. I would say that I, I've conducted a lot of new interviews. Uh, people actually approached me with information after the book came out and then after it was announced that a movie's being made. Mm. Uh, and so I've talked to a lot of people and gained a lot of new information about his life and career. And I am writing an updated, you know, second edition that will probably come out, you know, timed with the, the movie's premiere, which I don't know when that'll be exactly, but probably a, a year or two away from now. Okay. I hired an international investigator who's an expert in computer searches, and he's uh, looking into whether Jimmy is dead or alive. And if he's alive, he's looking into where he he lives. So your listeners should stay tuned for that. Sure, they will. Um, and then, uh, as I said, um, the, uh, the film is progressing. It's in what we call the development stage. And the screenwriter is named Paul Vera. And he had, he's famous for a punk rock movie called Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Yes. Uh, which is a life of Ian Dury in the Blockheads. Hmm. And uh, it's been a real pleasure working with him. And so he's now actually writing the script. He's finished the film treatment. Now he's on to the script. Excellent. Well, we will all keep our eyes and our ears out both for that film and for the new version of this fascinating book Jim I've had a, a really interesting hour with you I've I've learned so much yeah. about 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 Jimmy and about the Beatles um I think great it's... questions Joe. I really oh thank you thank you Jim questions. that's that's really kind of you to say um well uh, yeah there, there aren't many mysteries left in in the Beatles world but I think this that's is definitely true. one this is definitely that's one true. thank you so so much for joining us today um it's been a real pleasure thank you Joe it's been a pleasure for me too